now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hello, my name is Andrew Strohlein. I work for Human Rights Watch. I recently wrote an article for Persuasion on the other Navalny's, looking at other dissidents around the world. I took four examples and then tried to make sense of what drives such brave people to put their lives on the line for freedom. First is Ilham Toti, an ethnic Uyghur economist and critic of the Chinese government. In the face of the authorities' abuses and discrimination against the Uyghur population in the Xinjiang region, Toti's been a voice of reason and decency. He was just the kind of person, that kind of peaceful reformer that the authorities should have embraced. But in 2014, they instead sentenced Toti to life in prison on bogus charges of separatism after an absurdly unfair trial. The second dissident I look at in the piece is Ahmed Mansour, a prominent human rights activist in the United Arab Emirates. Mansour was sentenced to 10 years in prison in 2018 on charges entirely related to his statements on fundamental rights. Yes, a decade in prison for nothing more than telling the truth. The third dissident I look at in the article is Sonia Guajajara, a Brazilian activist who has become a powerful voice in the cause of indigenous and environmental rights. Over 300 people have been killed in Brazil in the past decade in conflicts over the use of land and resources in the Amazonian states, and she surely knows the grave risks she faces. Yet she continues to speak out, specifically even against those violent criminal networks that are behind the murders. The fourth dissident I look at in the article is the musician-turned-opposition leader Bobby Wine in Uganda. He's been arrested countless times and tortured for exercising his fundamental right to free speech, and yet he still had the courage to challenge the five-term president, Yoweri Museveni, for the country's top post. Now, these four dissidents come from a range of cultural backgrounds and differing political contexts. Some are purely human rights activists. Others have political ambitions. But what unites them all is a courage that most of us find incomprehensible. They know the likely consequences of their actions. That could include imprisonment, torture, death. And yet they carry on anyway. Why? Two decades ago, I asked Russian investigative journalist and human rights defender Anna Politkovskaya just how she could keep doing what she did. For her reporting on abuses by Russian forces in the Second Chechen War, the military detained her, beat her, and subjected her to a mock execution. How can you go on with your investigations? I asked. Surely you know the military's intimidation is not just for show, and that they may actually kill you next time, no? Of course, she replied. And then she explained how she saw no choice. The crimes had to be exposed, and she was in a position to do it. She knew the risks. Polikovskaya was poisoned on a plane in 2004, much as Navalny was last year. She survived that poisoning, but was shot dead outside her apartment in 2006. Now, I don't believe that any of these dissidents have a desire to become martyrs. They simply see their societies mired in corruption and brutal power networks and find that just unacceptable. They have basic demands that resonate. The right to speak your mind, the right to a healthy environment, the right to protest peacefully, the right to vote for your leaders and have your votes counted. We see dissidents' bravery and vision as inspiring, and we struggle to understand what makes them choose such a dangerous path. But that's just it. We see it as a brave choice. They don't see any choice at all. 
Andrew Stroline's piece called The Other Navalny's was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is William Easterly. Bill is a professor of economics at NYU and one of the most renowned and trenchant critics of the current regime of development aid. In his books, The Tyranny of Experts, as well as The White Man's Burden, Why the West's Effort to Aid the Rest Have Done So Much Ill and So Little Good, he points out the ways in which our well-intentioned desire to help poor countries around the world grow, our humanitarian instinct to rescue some of those who are most poor, who are most in need, has often been counterproductive. Why it has actually made it harder for countries to resist dictatorships, to develop democratic institutions, and why in many cases it has actually made the very countries that we are hoping to help poorer. Bill insists that he's actually an optimist, that his prescription is neither that countries around the world should simply stay poor and that that's okay, nor that we should give up on the ability to develop. Rather than seeing himself as a pessimist about our ability to help those countries, he sees himself as an optimist in terms of these countries' ability to actually make real economic and social and political progress in the coming decades. So for anybody who wants to think critically about what we can do to improve the world and what perhaps we shouldn't do to improve the world because it might wind up being counterproductive, this conversation will hopefully be very illuminating. Bill Easterly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Yasha. It's great to be here. Well, listen, I've been an admirer of your work for a long time, so it's a real pleasure to meet and get to chat with you. Likewise. So it's a mutual admiration. <laughs> oh, well, wonderful. You know, yours is one of those books that really did change my mind, or at least what I've grappled with a lot since reading it. You know, I think one of our real moral obligations is to try and ensure that different parts of the world develop economically, given how much better life would be for people in the still not so developed parts of Asia and Africa and so on, if they you know, had better access to, to electricity, to roads, to education. And so it's very tempting to say we should be spending a lot of money on foreign aid and other things. What do you think is wrong with or naive about the basic picture of people who say we owe it to the poor around the world to send foreign aid to them? Why is that often not the right thing to do? Well, I agree very much with the objective of reducing global poverty and the material suffering of the poor from you know, malaria and infant mortality and starvation and all, the, all those things. But I think you know, human well-being is not only about material development. It's also human beings worldwide have very similar aspirations for having their own human rights respected, their political and economic rights respected, the dignity of self-determination. And I think where aid has had uh, real blinders on is this lack of appreciation for the global battle for these values, for democracy and human rights. And aid too often has been very willing to support brutal autocratic rulers 
when it seems convenient to do so to help some kind of material development agenda, but totally neglecting the human rights of the poor, the forgotten rights of the poor. So I think there's sort of two different critiques here, right? And perhaps we can go into both of them. One is that development aid, which is supposed to help make societies more affluent and empower citizens, can often stabilize autocratic regimes and right, exactly. uh, make it harder for them to make demands on their own governments. The other question is about the extent to which uh, development aid has actually helped these economies. So perhaps we can go into into each of those into each of those questions. Why is it that sending money to some of these societies should have these negative effects? When I remember some of the texts that I read as a grad student in both political science and economics, the idea of modernization theory, which dominated for much of the 20th century, was broadly speaking that as people become more affluent, as they become more educated, they're more open to democratic values, more capable of making demands on their governments, all good things go together. And so, you know, if you're making these societies more affluent, they are going to get more democratic over time. So what's wrong with that picture? Yeah, well, one thing I really enjoyed working on this book was reading the, the history of development. And one fascinating thing to me is the argument you just made was first made in colonial times by British colonial officials who said, you know, well, what should come first is material development, especially in, in tropical Africa. And they projected on poor people the idea, the supposed wish to have their material needs said addressed first, which uh, British benevolent colonial officials thought that they were doing because colonial regimes had their own development programs. Development was not a new idea. It was very much a part of the colonial colonial rationale for British colonial rule. And uh, a colonial official named Lord Haley during World War II said, you know, Africans don't really care about being independent from us. They just want our development aid. And uh, that was a very convenient rationale for what at that time they thought would be perpetuating colonial rule for decades, if not centuries, according to some of the quotes I saw. And of course, what's wrong with that is, of course, it's very easy for a self-interested colonial official to say, you know, poor people don't really care about the rights that we are depriving them of. They don't care about our oppression. They just care about the fact that we're offering them these supposedly wonderful material benefits in return for them giving up those rights. And you know, only a few years later, after World War II, they found out how wrong their view of people was. The most popular cause in Africa for many of the last several generations has not been development. It has been about independence, about fighting for equal dignity and rights with the rest of the world. So I think that normative premise, I certainly grant you, and most listeners to this podcast, I think, will grant you that to say, hey, you know, we should not worry about freedom. We should not worry about your ability to live in a democracy as long as you develop, that especially when that's imposed from the outside, that is an unacceptable trade-off. But why do you believe that there is this tension at all? Um, you know, what's the empirical evidence? And I know that obviously you've worked on this in great detail. Uh, but explain to those who haven't read the books, who don't know that literature, why it is that we should think that helping the poorest countries in the world with development aid should somehow run counter to those countries becoming democratic or being able to stand up for their rights. Because I think part of the way that the post-colonial, sort of after the period of colonialism, the modernization literature framed things is that you would expect those things to go together. That, you know, once societies become more affluent, once people have better education, 
they will, in fact, be better able to fight for democracy. And so the trade-off that you sort of assume in this conversation, it doesn't hold. Let's give them money and that's going to help them become democracies too. So there's nothing, you know, we don't have to decide between these two values. We can have both at the same time. Why are you skeptical of that? Well, the money that you are giving in aid is going to people like Joseph Mobutu in Zaire, not Democratic Republic of the Congo, Mela Sanawi in Ethiopia, you know, Museveni in Uganda. So when you're supporting brutal, corrupt, tyrannical autocrats, the main thing you do is you help them stay in power longer. So there is a trade-off. You are helping anti-democratic authoritarians stay in power longer and thus you're, you're hurting the democratic rights of the people that you're supposed to be helping. And this is even worse when you might have some other agenda, as in fact the U.S. and the U.K. and Western donors have had during the war on terror, when what they're most concerned with is supporting their allies in the war on terror, which included the same people that I just mentioned, Masavani, Melissa Just like in the Cold War, USA and Western aid have been supporting Mobutu in the Cold War. That political agenda that the donors have is actually leading them to support the worst autocrats. In fact, the biggest increases in Western aid since 2001 have gone to the quarter of the world's countries that are the least free measured in terms of political and economic rights, according to a measure developed by the World Bank. And then even without that political agenda, even the idea of trying to be neutral and not caring about the government that you are giving aid to, if it is an authoritarian regime, which it often is, then you are just perpetuating authoritarian rule. And that is bad for both the political and human rights of poor people, and it's actually bad for development also. So first of all, let me understand, why is it that such a strikingly large portion of development aid goes to the most authoritarian countries? Presumably, by and large, it's not as though the relevant agencies within the United States, within the United Kingdom, within Western European countries that give a lot of this development aid have a preference for dictators or have a preference for working with these dictatorial regimes. So I guess one of the possible explanations you've mentioned is that in the context of something like the war on terror, you simply are willing to work with anybody who you think is on your side or who you think in whatever way is willing to render you assistance. That's part of a reason. Are there other reasons? I mean, is one of the reasons that the more dictatorial a regime is, the poorer the country is going to become. And once the country is very poor, we're going to go in to help. So that even if you're just looking by, you know, which are the countries with the lowest per capita income that's actually going to systematically favor dictatorial regimes? What's the mechanism there? Yeah, what you just said is, is definitely true also, that um, the aid agencies, of course, for good altruistic humanitarian reasons, they want to give aid to poor countries. And there is a big correlation, as you said, between uh, the poverty of a country and the likelihood of autocracy. But even within a, a group of aid recipients, you could still try to direct the aid most or only to regimes that are more free, more democratic, respect more political, human, and economic rights. Aid agencies have never really done that. And part of it is because of those political motivations. I think development people are kind of, like you said, they themselves would prefer you know, to support human rights and democracy and everything. But the foreign policy agenda of the rich donors is kind of offering them a way to generate more political support for development aid, which is also done for good altruistic reasons. If you can make sort of an alliance between the foreign policy or national security needs of the U.S. and the U.K. and other big Western donors, 
and the cause of development, then you have a much more political security in getting more and more financial support for foreign aid, which they want for their humanitarian reasons. But it means subverting the agenda of of human rights, democracy, and even development to this kind of national security agenda that is, in the end, winds up promoting autocracy. I'm trying to think through how it is that this development aid supposedly helps these autocratic forces stay in power. And I guess the closest analogy I have in my mind is a pretty well-established body of research in political science on the resource curse, particularly oil resources. And so it turns out that one of the most plausible explanations for why the Middle East has struggled to develop democratic regimes to such an extent is that a number of countries in the Middle East have a lot of oil and that this sort of creates a very bad dynamic between the government and its citizens. Because instead of having to raise a lot of tax revenues, the government simply has control over these oil fields. And that means that it doesn't rely on the cooperation of its citizens to the same extent. That makes it easier for dictators to sustain themselves. Is development aid basically a form of resource curse? Is there an analogy here to the situations faced by these Middle Eastern countries where because development aid does not come from citizens themselves, it comes from a sort of outside force that's put directly into the hands of a government? The sort of basic accountability mechanisms you need for a healthy development path are short-circuited? Yeah, it is analogous. There is like an aid curse that is very much like the oil curse, in which indeed the problem is that you're breaking the links of accountability. You're, you're breaking the need for some kind of social contract within the society for the government to deliver some good things in order to stay in power. And instead, you're giving an authoritarian government a lifeline from external support to stay in power, even if it is doing actual harm to the citizens or grossly failing to meet the needs of the citizens. Now, I think the other thing we should uh, introduce into the conversation is also the, the role of the war of ideas or the clash of visions worldwide. I think that's another more indirect way, but for me is an extremely important way in which development aid can wind up subverting the cause of democracy worldwide. World Bank presidents, like a couple that I studied were Robert Zellick and Jim Kim, you know, we're making kind of laudatory statements about China's brutal regime, about Melissanawi. Bill Gates also is one of the big actors in development with the Gates Foundation who is making sort of laudatory statements about Melissanawi. And the reason for doing that is they thought they needed to do that to get sort of the rulers sanctioned to operate the development aid business inside of those countries, which is kind of understandable. But you don't really have to go overboard to issue the kind of laudatory statements that they issued in support of those authoritarian regimes. And the unintentional effect that has is now the global battle of ideas between democracy and autocracy has a lot of development people on the wrong side, praising the autocrats when you should be you know, participating on the, the side of the Democrats. And that's unintentional, and they have some other agenda for doing that. But for me, that's still really sad and really regrettable that that's happening. That's fascinating. So it actually has this sort of strange spill on effect on democracy, which is that, you know, it provides intellectual cover for autocrats. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. Development very much has this kind of idea of the benevolent autocrat or the developmental leader is another less, less felicitous phrase for the, that idea. 
And frankly, there's very little support for that idea. I've been involved in a research paper that finds some evidence that some autocrats have some modest or positive effects sometimes on growth, but other equally autocratic leaders have terrible effects on growth, like Mobutu versus Lee Kuan Yew. You think you're supporting a Lee Kuan Yew, but you're actually supporting a Mobutu. And so, you know, this idea of the benevolent autocrat, I think, has only limited evidence in favor of it that there ever are benevolent autocrats. We usually don't know who they are until long after the fact and have enough data to calculate what their supposedly positive effect might have been. And it always turns out to be very modest or non-existent most of the time. It's very rare that you find a genuinely benevolent autocrat. And yet the benevolent autocrat idea is used in almost every authoritarian country where aid is operating. Say, oh, we're supporting this developmental leader, this benevolent leader, you know, for the cause of development. Well, this is the oldest argument. I mean, Aristotle makes the argument that when there's one preeminent man among his fellow citizens, then he should rule. And I think it's undoubtedly true that if you really had a dictator who was both benevolent and superior to everybody else in virtue and intelligence, they would probably have pretty good results. There's two problems with that, which is firstly, that people of that kind of intelligence and benevolence rarely wind up as the leaders of military coups and exactly. uh, all the other things they exactly. need to do to become dictators. And secondly, as Lord Acton famously put, that absolute power corrupts absolutely. So even right. if people come right. in quite virtuous and with good intentions, as often happens, those good intentions are very quickly corrupted. And so, uh, you know, sure, if you look at Singapore's development, it's very impressive. It turns out actually there's a lot of East Asian nations that went a more robustly democratic route, but also have had rapid economic development. So Singapore is perhaps not as unique. Yeah, South, South Korea, Taiwan, Japan, yeah. Exactly. So perhaps Singapore is not so unique. Perhaps there's something about cultural reasons and geographic reasons that have set that up. But certainly the Singapore story is impressive. But to think that you can emulate Singapore very easily in different parts of the world is, I believe, quite naive. Let me go on a little tangent here because I had a debate recently with Richard Haas about how appealing something like the Chinese model is on the ground. And it sort of speaks to that mm -hmm. question. Now, my sense is that if you asked people in many countries in Africa and Latin America and Asia, you know, would you want a, you know, hyper-competent bureaucratic elite that may be corrupt, that may limit your freedoms in a robust way? But that does lead consistently to six, seven, eight percent GDP growth over the course of many decades. Uh, they might, in fact, say yes. I can see why that has appeal. What I'm skeptical of is that people are, in fact, looking to countries like China and thinking that that's a model they can emulate. So, you know, even if I go to Italy, which is a country I know well, obviously a developed country, you know, if you ask people, hey, would you be willing to give up some of your democratic freedoms and rights in order to have you know, a hyper-competent government and six, seven percent economic growth every year, I think a good number of people might say yes. If you ask them, do you want to try to implement something like the Singaporean or the Chinese system in Italy in order to get there? They'd say, of course not. Our bureaucrats are never going to be like that. They're not going to be benevolent. They're not going to be competent. So my sense is that actually the real on-the-ground support for these ideas is limited because people don't trust their own elites to deliver on it. But I wonder... You know, those countries much better than I do. So I'm, I'm wondering where you stand in this debate. Is something like Singapore and China a real model that people aspire to in the least developed countries around the world? 
Or do they have skepticism that the local elites would ever deliver on that? And so therefore it doesn't have this real grassroots support. Yeah, I think what you've mentioned is sort of like the reciprocity test that we should have on this whole idea. You know, if uh, poor people supposedly want our aid to support a brutal autocrat who is going to supposedly be promoting high growth and development, we should ask ourselves, how would we feel, like you just said about Italians, if some outside foreign aid actor were supporting a brutal autocrat in our countries, and so in my country in the U.S., if some Chinese or Russian foreign aid agency was supporting you know, some general who is running for the title of benevolent autocrat in the U.S. would be supported by that aid and then would implement a system like the Chinese or Russian system, which was supposedly going to deliver growth. Would we be okay with that? No, no, obviously not. And uh, I don't think poor people are any different than rich people on that question. I think some of the evidence from both qualitative surveys and from more systematic surveys shows that it's hard to imagine, and it's indeed very hard to find, that there are people, poor people who say, oh, it's okay to, for some of our people to be tortured for the, the sake of keeping a, a security regime, supporting an autocrat in power. I can't imagine that happening. The other interesting thing going on worldwide is there's this great project called the Varieties of Democracy Project that collects data on how many political protests are going on around the world. They've collected this data for countries and territories all the way back to 1900. And in 2019, the number of the world's countries that were having active political protests, which they define as usually being about corruption or autocracy, it was 44% of the world's countries were having those kind of protests in 2019. And that it was the highest it had ever been in the history of that series going back to 1900. So the idea that poor people don't care about their rights and are really willing to give them away for some extremely dubious process of high growth to a brutal autocrat, I just don't see that that makes much sense on either theory or evidence. Yeah, and that's a, that's a fascinating finding. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I've spoken on this podcast about all the bad news with democracy around the world, the 15th year of a democratic recession, which was steeper in 2020 than it was in any of the previous 14 years. I do think, as you see in the case of the United States, that that also provokes a, a counter-movement, that people remember the importance of democratic values often when they don't have them or when they're in danger of losing them. And that data point you mentioned from a variety of capitalism data set about 2019 I presume 2020 would be different because of a pandemic, but about 2019 or a pre-pandemic moment is happening in that respect, but people do in fact care about fighting for those values. Yeah, the only group of people that we can really count on for really remembering and respecting the rights of poor people are usually poor people themselves. They fight for their own rights, even if we rich people are not willing to. And, you know, I think mentioning the cause of democracy in rich countries also, I think it's more important than ever to have a kind of global alliance that is really celebrating democracy in both rich and poor countries and not discredit democracy in poor countries by us having from rich countries having a double standard that we want democracy for ourselves, but we don't care about democracy in poor countries. That double standard is like the worst injury you can do internationally to the cause of democracy. If you really want China and Russia to win the war of ideas, then have a hypocritical double standard, that's really going to lose the battle. 
Vettel standard, by the way, as you know very, very well, also exists just on the fact of economic development. I remember reading a bunch of articles, a lot of them left-leaning European newspapers, you know, at this point six or seven years ago, about a new car that he had been developed in India, which was going to be very cheap and going to give uh, you know many more Indians access to that form of mobility. And it was reported on nearly exclusively in negative terms. Understandably, because of concerns about climate change, which are, of course, pressing, uh, but there was a very strange element to this attitude. You know, people who all, I'm sure, owned a car writing these articles uh, for readers who all own a car saying, isn't it terrible that all of these people in India are going to have more of a middle-class life, that they're going to be able to move around more freely as all these people lamenting this fact where... now. Obviously, we need to find solutions to climate change. We need to figure out how to have real mobility, how to have people have the luxuries of cars or very good public transport without destroying the environment. I agree with that goal, but there is a strange sort of democracy for us and affluence for us. But when suddenly a lot more people gain some of the core sort of keystones of affluence, including cars, that's suddenly a bad, worrying thing. Yeah, exactly. It's like the draconian idea that you need zero economic growth to prevent climate change. Even if that were true, it's incredibly inequitable internationally. So, you know, for us to accept zero economic growth after we're already rich is a lot easier than India or Africa accepting zero economic growth when there's still so much poverty. Like economic growth was okay for us. We've already got it, but we have a double standard that's not okay for poor people. So let's speak about economic growth, because so far you've made the argument that it's not worth trading off democracy against economic development, that often development aid has actually done that trade-off, that it has empowered autocrats, and that's all quite convincing to me. But what about the underlying point that, uh, look, we're not spending that much money in development aid, but we are spending a significant amount of money, a significant share of GDP in very rich countries like the United States, like the United Kingdom, like the European Union on development aid. And presumably this has helped, you know, get running water to people and build schools for them and give them an education. Um, It's natural to assume that all this money has really improved the world. And if it has done that, if it has really lifted people out of poverty, it's sort of hard to argue against. You're skeptical of that, right? Why should anybody believe that? Why should anybody believe that all these efforts we've gone to, all this money we've spent has either been largely ineffective or perhaps even counterproductive in terms of economic growth, not in terms of democratic values and so on? Yeah, I... uh... I teach my students, both undergraduates and PhD students, about the, the old idea of the poverty trap in poor countries, that poor people can't afford to save to fuel their own economic growth. And so aid has this wonderful potential to create the kind of investment you need to break countries out of the poverty trap and launch them into sustained growth and prosperity. That idea has been around since the 1950s and continues to be repeated today by the United Nations, by advocates like Jeff Sachs, who I (laughs) have a long, friendly debate with. And, um, you know, that has just totally failed to happen, where a lot of aid has gone in, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. The countries that have received lots and lots of aid have continued to stagnate in sub-Saharan Africa. Some of them recently started to have pretty good economic growth, and that's very encouraging, but that, again, was unrelated to aid. So the promise that a big inflow of aid would sort of have this transformational effect to launch countries into very high economic growth and escape poverty 
has really not worked out and the rigorous academic evidence has not supported it. And I guess uh, a big sign of what the current kind of impact of that evidence is, is actually a much smaller number of people are even talking these days about those kind of drastic ambitions for aid anymore. It's like everyone else has also kind of given up on that also, not just us aid critics. When you see most aid discussions these days in both the academic and policy world, it's usually focused on really small stuff, you know, like aid could finance, you know, deworming drugs for children so that they'll be more likely to be able to attend school or, um, you know, use flip charts in classrooms to improve learning. You know, it's really focusing on very tiny stuff, which is what is being done pretty rigorously these days with randomized controlled trials to see what works and what doesn't work. But usually what works is often something very tiny like that. So I remember from your book that actually when you compare some of the countries that have had a lot of development aid over the last 50 years and some of the countries that have, for various reasons have had very little development aid, even for the reasonably poor as well, the difference is not particularly meaningful, right? But actually it turns out that just the countries that have gotten a lot of development aid really haven't grown very much. And some of the countries that haven't gotten a lot of development aid have actually grown much more. Can you tell us a little bit about that evidence? Right. So um, it's actually very hard to find any country that has had a combination of aid and then a subsequent kind of shift upward in, in growth and kind of the supposed takeoff into sustained high economic growth. But the closest we can come to an example like that would be South Korea, which was getting a lot of aid, especially U.S. aid in the aftermath of the Korean War in the 50s, and then started to have a major growth takeoff in the 60s. Even that example doesn't fit that well, because it seemed like the decline in USA kind of provoked major economic reforms in the early 60s in South Korea. And then it was really trade that was the engine of growth in South Korea. And if you think of any of the other major success stories, like you mentioned, the East Asian tigers, Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, China, Malaysia, Thailand... It's very hard to find any role for aid in those countries. Aid was quantitatively unimportant, and there's no way in which it played a kind of strategic role in those takeoffs. And then in contrast, where aid is most important are sort of small African countries and a few small Central American countries, which there's a sort of bias in aid to give so much aid to small countries that they're actually getting sometimes 20 or 30 percent of their income from aid. And yet those are the countries, precisely the countries that have really failed to have these kind of supposed growth takeoffs that aid was supposed to create that just did not happen. That's fascinating and depressing. You know, why is it that aid doesn't help? I mean, you'd think that if you put a lot of money into a relatively poor country, it helps give people key infrastructure like running water, give people key educational resources like functioning schools, and that, that would have an impact. I mean, it doesn't take being an economist to think that. It sounds very plausible. So, you know, what are some of the mechanisms by which aid sort of stands in its own way or fails? Yeah, well, I think it goes back to a theme that's related very much to our theme today of democracy and human rights, the lack of accountability of aid donors for benefiting the intended beneficiaries that they're supposed to be benefiting. So there's no way in which official aid donors are sort of rewarded for good results or penalized for bad results or for even negative results. And so that lack of accountability sort of makes the aid donors themselves like an authoritarian regime that can sort of do, do whatever it wants without being accountable to the supposed citizens of the aid world. There's just no mechanism by which poor people in the aid system have a voice to protest 
bad outcomes or to reward good outcomes. So we have really egregious examples of that. Like one example that really motivated me a lot on this work was this case in Uganda in the year 2010. There was a World Bank project that was doing a forestry project by just taking poor people's land away from them in Mobende at gunpoint and destroying their homes and cattle and crops and marching them away at gunpoint and saying, you know, we're going to use this land for forestry. That is doing such direct harm to people that you would think there would be some kind of accountability for that. And yet that example was sadly illustrative. There was actually a front page story on this on the New York Times uh, the year after in 2011. So if ever there had been an opportunity for some kind of accountability, this might have been it because of the publicity. But the World Bank just said when the New York Times story came out, oh, yeah, we're looking into it. They sort of implicitly promising some kind of investigation to see what went wrong and to make sure it didn't happen again. But that investigation never happened. The World Bank correctly calculated that if they just did nothing, people would forget about it. And, you know, what was sad to me at the time when I was observing this is there are really very little outcry in the development aid world, even, uh, even outside of the official staff of the aid agencies. And I think it's because we are so zoned in on the idea of material development, as we were talking about earlier, that we just don't seem to realize the importance of this accountability. But the accountability is really going to determine whether aid works or not. Because, you know, what are the successful systems? They are systems in which there is some kind of accountability to the customers. So, you know, like in a, in a market system, there's enough freedom of choice by consumers that they can drive out of business a company that's doing harm to them. And in a democracy, there's enough political rights that you have some hope of driving out of office some public official who's actually doing harm to you as a citizen's. But we don't have that kind of accountability in the aid system. And that's, I think, one of the main reasons it doesn't work very well. So I think this example illustrates two things very powerfully. One is obviously the ways in which a lack of accountability can lead to terrible abuses of human rights and terrible impositions on the lives of people that these projects are supposedly meant to help. But the other is something that you've written about a lot, which is the sort of planning mindset, that this is presumably somebody sitting in Washington, D.C., in the offices of a World Bank, deciding that this land would be more productively used for forestry than for its current uses. Right, very much. And you worry that a lot can go wrong just in the process of that kind of planning, that a lot of foreign aid has been misdirected precisely because people come up with these sort of big large-scale theories and they try to impose them on different places. But that kind of planning mindset will just always lead you astray. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the planning mindset is very tempting because it sometimes seems like there are sort of obvious answers to poor people's problems and that some expert sitting in a Western capital in Washington or London can kind of devise a solution. But the lack of accountability means that if you do get the solution wrong, which happens fairly often in a planning framework, you get the solution wrong, there's no way of sort of self-correcting that you you get rid of the wrong solution. So the, the planning suffers from kind of like a, a knowledge problem and accountability problem that you, you often don't have enough knowledge. And I think that's what you're asking me about now, that the planner often doesn't really have enough knowledge about what really are poor people's problems for it to work. And then when they fail because of that lack of knowledge, then it's very hard to get a correction. By the way, the planning mindset also happens with non-governmental charities. It's very much a mindset of NGOs that some rich kid founds an NGO thinking, I know what the answer is, and then does something that doesn't work very well. 
So for example, a kind of ludicrous example was somebody came up with the bright idea of having like a merry-go-round that could be used to generate electricity in Southern Africa. And the idea was the children would want to play on the merry-go-round and make it go around. And then when it went around, the spinning of the merry-go-wheel would generate electricity through some generator, power generator to generate electricity. And then the poor people would have wonderful electricity source that came so cheaply. So it sounds like a wonderful idea. And this, uh, this idea actually got a lot of funding, got a lot of attention and got a lot of excitement going, but it, it just didn't work. <laughs> the technology was such that you were generating a really pathetic amount of electricity and the children were just not playing enough. Also, they overestimate the ability, to, the willingness of the children to play on very grounds. The children were not as interested as they thought they would be. So it actually wound up being kind of uh, one of the world's most inefficient electricity generators where poor older women from the village were kind of pushing the merry-go-round in a really inefficient way to generate a little bit of electricity. It just did not work. So the good news, it was eventually canceled. I'm not saying there's no possibility of some correction. Eventually, something really pathetically failing like that will end. <laughs> but it survived for a surprisingly long time and absorbed a surprisingly large amount of funding before it failed. The pitfalls of this particular idea are so obvious. I mean, from the possibility that the children will suddenly be forced to just go round and round and merry go round for hours and hours in order to produce the electricity needed to. I mean, you can just imagine all of the ways in which this can be. It's like child, child labor. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. I mean, instead of, you know, I'm sure the children were excited to, to play on the merry go round once when it first appeared in the village. But, you know, if they're suddenly told to just spend the whole days going around in this merry go round, I mean. <laughs> I find myself thinking throughout this conversation about a poem that I really love, that I believe is from the 1960s by a development worker called Ross Coggins. I assume you know it, but perhaps you don't. The development set. Have you heard of this poem? No, I don't actually. So let me read you a few of the stanzas from it. I won't read all of it, but you can all Google it. The development set by Ross Coggins. It, it easily shows up on Google. And again, I think this is from the 1960s with a few references which place it in that decade. But by and large, it sounds incredibly contemporary. Um, so he says, excuse me, friends, I must catch my jet. I'm off to join the development set. My bags are packed and I've had all my shots. I have traveler's checks. This is a 1960s reference, I suppose, and pills for the trots. The development set is bright and noble. Our thoughts are deep, our vision global. Although we move with the better classes, our thoughts are always with the masses. In Sheraton hotels and scattered nations, we damn multinational corporations. Injustice seems so easy to protest in such seething hotbeds of social rest. It goes on a little bit. Let me just read the last uh, couple of paragraphs. Development set homes are extremely chic, full of carvings, curios, and draped with batik. Eye-level photographs subtly assure that your host is at home with the rich and the poor. Enough with the verses, on with the mission. Our task is as broad as the human condition. Just pray to God the biblical promise is true. The poor you shall always have with you. It's a very biting ouch, satire, of course. Ouch, ouch. <laughs> yeah, you're provoking me to try to be a little bit nicer now at this point. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the development said, first of all, I know a lot of them personally, and they're really wonderful, good-hearted, kind, and well-intentioned people really trying to do their best in a difficult, difficult world. <laughs> and second, I was one of them myself. So <laughs> I have to be fair and say, yeah, I was part of that. I was doing that. I was not caring enough about the rights of the poor, not caring enough about whether aid worked, benefiting from nice first-class travel and luxury hotels. You know, so all of us have to kind of re-examine ourselves. 
and also try to be fair to the people who are the well-intentioned people caught in that system. They are heavily constrained by politics and by the mandates of the bureaucracy, and they really are sad about not being able to do more good than what they're able to do. And the author of this poem himself was a development worker, so I think he didn't yeah. cast his persons on others. I think it was also self-ironic. But I guess my question is, we're now, I believe, the 20th anniversary of your really influential work on this, or the most famous book on this, you know, to what extent have people taken on these critiques? Because the poem, you know, to me sounds like my dear friends who are in the developing world, who, as you're pointing out, are wonderful people who are generally motivated by doing good things about the world. But when I read this poem, I think of them, right? It still describes them. How much has changed over the last 20 years as a result of your critiques or just as a result of developments in general? Or do you think actually we're in the same bad place today than we were 20 years ago? I think there's some improvement in the aid business, at least away from the most kind of brutal kinds of coercion that the aid business itself is doing. So if you think of some of the older horror stories, they are worse than today's horror stories. So the way that aid supported forced sterilization in India in the 1970s and really supported the brutal one-child policy in China because they thought that was desirable to control population growth. And even the UN gave an award to the bad guys in both India and China for population control after those programs. So, you know, in the last 20 years, I would have a hard time imagining that kind of brutality happening today. So I want to try to be fair and acknowledge some improvement. But on the other hand, it's certainly a lot less than uh, a lot of us were hoping for. I was writing a blog called Aid Watch that had the kind of hopeful mission that if we just criticize them enough, <laughs> I was writing this from about 2009 to 2011, if we just criticize them enough, they would behave better. <laughs> that was the idea. And that was sort of like one of the guiding inspirations that I tried to give myself in writing criticism. I wasn't trying to destroy the business. I was trying to motivate them to do better things. And I think most aid critics have similar motivations. But I think no matter how much criticism there is, it just looks like they keep on doing a lot of the same things. And I think it's probably because the political constraints are still so strong. The political reality is foreign policy first. You always need to serve the agendas of the UK and the US. And then there's the sort of spending mandate that aid agencies will go out of business unless they spend all of their funds. And they often find it very difficult to spend all of their funds without also doing a lot of projects that are either dumb or counterproductive or actually harmful or supporting autocrats like we've been talking about. But their main objective is just keep spending the funds because if they don't, they will literally go out of business. And if there's any single mandate in any government agency or international agency, it's ever, ever, it's always don't go out of business. It always continue to perpetuate itself from one generation to the next. And that mandate, sadly, just kind of really undermines any hope of constructive change, sadly enough. And that too, of course, is also true of non-governmental charities, that if you mostly solve a problem, you need to find a new problem to solve. As some people have made interesting critiques of, for example, gay rights organizations of that. And what do you do if you actually win a wonderful set of victories? Well, you have to keep fighting and finding other causes to, to fight for because you don't want to close down. You don't want to fire your staff. You don't want to go to your donors and say, there's nothing important for you to do anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think that applies to certainly some of the NGOs like Save the Children and World Vision are NGOs that have gotten a lot of criticism over time. And yet you really don't see them changing very much in response to the, the criticism. 
Save the Children was really criticized for this child sponsorship model that is very inefficient to actually keep track of one child being financed by one donor. And it's almost impossible to do in practice. And so Save the Children was not really being honest with its own donors about whether they were directly supporting one child who had a name, who had a picture that they would send at the donor. And that was pointed out ages ago, and yet Save the Children continues the same message, that it's giving you, the donor, the chance to save one identifiable child that they will send you a picture of. So that's a, a small example of how the NGOs themselves are also kind of very resistant to change. They have a model that's keeping them in business. They have no reason to change the model. So when I think of sort of two of the big developments in this space since the publication of your work on a lot of this, I think two of the things that are now they invoke are effective altruism. So the idea that we try to encourage people to do very careful dollar accounting of what kind of impact the donations actually have and precisely take them away from charitable activities that sound very appealing, but don't actually really impact the world to ones uh, like probably deworming children that seem to have a much stronger impact. And then the other, I suppose, is the use of experiments in order to more rigorously study what happens when you give a certain kind of aid to one village, but not to another village that is otherwise similar as a way of figuring out what actually works. How hopeful are you that these kinds of movements either have changed something or that if they were more broadly adopted, they really could change something? Yeah, I think of those two movements as being essentially the same same thing because the effect of altruism is usually being verified with the randomized experiments. So to try to be balanced about this, I think there are some important ways in which that idea, effective altruism verified by rigorous tests, has done a lot of good. So I think one thing that made it a lot more difficult for aid agencies to do the kind of self-evaluation that they used to get away with a sort of qualitative self-evaluation which always seemed to turn out to be very positive about the agency evaluating itself, the World Bank evaluating itself, USAID evaluating itself. Just like my students that I just gave a midterm at NYU would love to be able to grade their own exams <laughs> and give themselves an A. But they don't need to grade themselves. We have great inflation. We grade them as they would grade themselves. It's even better. <laughs> even better, yes. So at least the more rigorous kind of evaluation has made it uh, much more difficult to get away with that kind of silly self-evaluation that was generating a lot of bad stuff continuing in both official aid and NGOs. And also, I think that these randomized experiments and the idea of effective altruism have identified some good things that have done a lot of good. So uh, these ideas have been used a lot for like fighting malaria, for example, and figuring out ways to effectively distribute insecticide-treated bed nets to fight malaria and other ways to fight malaria. And there has been progress, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, against malaria associated with that. So now let's be fair and recognize where that is happening. So I'll give you the other side, the downside, the negative side. is actually very much the main theme that we've been discussing today. These randomized experiments and these small-scale effective altruism initiatives are extremely naive about politics, extremely naive about autocratic rule under which they're often operating. And so they are overestimating the potential to do good because they're not considering the way in which the doing good may either have no sort of transformational effect because it's just in the context of a brutal authoritarian regime that is destroying the prospects for development but for political reasons. 
and conceivably enough aid flowing in justified by randomized experiments or effective altruism could be doing harm in the ways we've talked about, that it's kind of alleviating the government of the need to address the social needs of its own citizens and so breaking the social contract and just keeping autocratic regimes in power longer and thus actually doing harm. So one of the people I admire on this issue is Angus Eaton, who in his book, The Great Escape, had a great chapter on how aid is destroying the accountability of governments to their own citizens. And he's also very critical of the randomized experiments. He describes them as just like the latest fad in development. You know, Western experts are infatuated with their own propaganda without doing a lot of good for poor people. I'm glad about the balanced assessment because it at least gives us a little bit of optimism. I guess my question is, what's the upshot of all of this, right? So I'm somebody who takes your critiques very, very seriously and is 90, 90 something percent persuaded by them. At the same time, like you, I believe that it is incredibly important for these countries to develop, for their citizens to have access to a middle-class life, to have access to water and electricity and education and mobility and all of the other things that do make people's lives significantly better, but allow them to have more self-determined lives. So I still feel this tension within me, which is to say, hey, the thing that it feels like we can do doesn't actually seem to work very well and it has lots of dangers with it, but it also feels a little bit too self-serving to say, so perhaps there's just nothing we can do. Perhaps we should just do nothing at all and hope that eventually these governments figure themselves out and people have a chance to escape the poverty they're in without us doing anything. Is there a middle path? Is there a third way? Is there something we can do? Or do we just need to own our discomfort and say it's not our role, it's not our task, there's nothing we can do? What's the upshot in your mind? Well, one upshot is when the aid and development system is actually doing harmful things, then do nothing is an improvement over doing harmful things. <laughs> so um, you know, this way in which do nothing is kind of like the worst possible sin in human history is not really consistent with the way the world works, which is that often the, what's going on is harmful and you just want to stop rich people from doing harmful things, like the things we've talked about. You know, if the World Bank is forcing peasants at gunpoint off their land to do a forestry project, you know, just don't do that. Just leave them alone. If the U.S. is supporting brutal autocrats only because they're convenient in the war on terror, then don't pretend that's about development. Don't, don't do that, at least not for development reasons, because it's really harming development. It's not helping development. And then there are some more modest positive things that can be done. Maybe send out cash grants to poor people. Maybe just make a lot of health services available. Health is an area where foreign aid works better than most other areas. You know, fund vaccinations and antibiotics. Now fund uh, vaccines for COVID, you know, is an obvious thing that aid could be doing right now. Fund COVID vaccines for poor countries. But then I think the biggest thought that I have about this issue is I think we rich people are not really helping things by being so infatuated with our own role in the whole picture of ending world poverty. And I don't think poor people really think about their own poverty that way. They're not th sitting around thinking, oh, you know, the whole key to the problem is what some rich Western donor will do for me. <laughs> That they're just sitting around thinking that that's the solution to their problem. They're just waiting for that to happen. When people say critics are pessimistic and the eight proponents are optimistic, I think it's more that they're pessimistic or optimistic about different things. I think eight proponents are remarkably kind of ludicrously optimistic about the role of a small group of Western rich people to transform the rest of the world. 
And they seem to be very pessimistic about the ability of poor people themselves to achieve entrepreneurship and political and economic reforms in a way that will, will have really wonderful lasting effects on, on poverty. So, you know, that last thing, I think, is the thing that's most important to me. We should not be so narcissistic and self-infatuated that we are so much exaggerating our own role in this whole mission of improving the world, improving the rest of the non-Western world. I think there's something about that that's very condescending and paternalistic and that I really find very objectionable. And I think there is a strange moment, but I've talked about on the podcast as well, of Stephen Pinker, where we're just not willing to lean into optimism at the moment. We're not willing to see the good things in the world. And in yeah, fact, yeah, as yeah. I understand it, for example, Africa, which obviously remains the poorest continent, has grown at much higher rate yes, over the last yes. decades than it did in much of the 20th century. Yes, exactly. Exactly correct. Yeah. Part of that is the... Uh, the homegrown economic reforms and some political reforms. So there has been the spread of democracy in Africa. There has been economic reforms that did away with some of the worst abuses of authoritarian rulers. Like rulers in Ghana used to force cocoa producers to turn over their cocoa at a pathetic price that was less than 6% of the world price. And that was really destroying both the rights and the economic livelihood of cocoa producers. If they tried to smuggle cocoa, the Ghanaian autocratic government of that era had the death penalty for smugglers. And so compared to that, which is a regime that lasted up to about the mid-80s, since then Ghana has had both political and economic reforms where it's now a democracy and those kind of brutal economic controls have been removed. The Ghanaian economy has been doing much better, has had positive growth compared to the very negative growth of the earlier regime. And it's had a great expansion of human and political rights, and Ghana is now a functioning democracy as well. So that's a kind of hopeful story that I think we're neglecting to stress enough in the whole development and aid business. Yeah, so I like this reframing, but actually you may be very pessimistic about the ability of USAID to make a positive difference, but you're actually very optimistic about the yes. ability of countries like Ghana to develop. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Yasha. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.